0: With the Supreme Court set to roll back federal protections for abortions, we look at the implications that could have on privacy and security. Abortion clinics have long been the site of clashes between anti-abortion activists and providers themselves, and protesters from both sides of the debate have mobilized. A new report by Reveal looks into the growing number of calls to police from abortion clinics in Florida, found that reports of harassment, violence, and intimidation doubled between 2016 and 2021. Now that Florida's new restrictive abortion measures take effect in July, providers are preparing for an escalation in that violence. We'll talk to the reporter behind the investigation and check in with an abortion provider in Florida about her clinic. Later on, we'll discuss tech companies and privacy in relation to Roe v. Wade. Tech companies are constantly tracking and selling your data to third parties, often without explicit consent from users. Privacy advocates and supporters of the pro-choice movement are raising the alarm about how personal data could be used by law enforcement and anti-abortion activists if Roe v. Wade is overturned. We'll get into all that and more in just a moment. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp online therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at betterhelp.com/1a With the Supreme Court poised to roll back federal protections for abortions, protesters have mobilized across the country at state capitals, city halls, and even at the homes of Supreme Court justices. But abortion clinics have long been where anti abortion activists and providers have clashed. A new report by Reveal examines the growing number of calls to police from abortion clinics in Florida. They found that the reports of harassment, violence, and intimidation doubled between 2016 and 2021, with one clinic reporting a 400% jump in calls within that same time period. Florida is an important state for reproductive care. There are 55 abortion clinics in that state, which is more than seven other southeastern states combined. But as Florida prepares to pass new restrictive abortion measures in July, providers there are preparing for an escalation in protests and violence outside their clinics. Joining us today from Tampa, Florida, to discuss the findings of that report is Laura Morrell. She's a reporter at Reveal. Laura, thanks very much for being here.
1: Hi, David. Thanks for having me.
0: Also with us is Mary Ziegler. She's a professor at the UC Davis School of Law and the author of the book Abortion and the Law in America, Roe vs. Wade to the Present. And I should say she was until recently a Florida resident, a professor at Florida State College of Law. Mary, welcome back and congrats on the new gig. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Laura, let me start with you asking why you decided to zero in on Florida for this investigation into harassment at abortion clinics. What is it about that state that drew you to it?
1: Well, Florida it has a special place in the history of the abortion rights movement. Um, in 1980, voters here made it one of the few states to enshrine and express right to privacy in its constitution. Um, and this privacy clause applies to abortion rights in the state. Um, The state uh, has 55 abortion clinics, more than seven other southeastern states combined, and it's an important receiving state for out-of-state patients, especially from the south. Um, In the past five years, more than 16,000 patients have traveled here for abortion care. And it's because abortion care is so widely accessible here, at least up to this point, Um, That remains a frustration for the anti-abortion movement. Um, We know that many protesters and anti-abortion groups from out of state have come to Florida in recent years um, to protest outside of clinics. Um, Most recently, actually, in January, dozens of protesters blockaded the entrance of a Planned Parenthood in Fort Myers. Several people were arrested and they came from states like Michigan, Tennessee and Arkansas.
0: Laura Morrell, let me ask you about the, the build that we've seen so far. So before we look ahead to the future, let me just ask you about what you, you saw as you looked at these data from 2016 to, to 2021. I'm curious why harassment increased during that period. Someone at the center of your piece is Trudy Perez Paveda with a, a local group, Family for Life, that's kind of tied to the Thomas More Society. How much is, is that organization, what led to this uptick in, in harassment that, that these clinics have seen?
1: Well, what I'm hearing on the grounds from abortion providers and abortion rights groups is that the anti-abortion movement um, feels emboldened because there have been so many abortion restrictions that have been passing across the country um, and more recently in Florida. And now as we await the Dobbs decision this summer. And so they're feeling encouraged. um, And so they feel motivated to uh, target abortion clinics. Um, In Florida, uh, for instance, you mentioned um, Trudy perez poveda and the Thomas More Society. The Thomas More Society is one of the leading anti-abortion law firms in this country, um, and they've been backing local groups across the country um, who have been targeting abortion clinics, including in Florida. There's one clinic in particular in Jacksonville where an anti-abortion group um, about more than a year ago now was able to lease property right next door, which gives them direct access to patients and clinic staff that are walking into this clinic. And tensions are rising there, as well as in other clinics across the state.
0: It's a, it's a really astonishing thing. I'd love for you to talk a bit more about that, just this group's decision to, to lease this facility. The, the, the clinic is down a road that has restricted access. Um, through through her wherewithal, I suppose, uh, Trudy Perez-Proveda has found this property, put the organization there. Just explain sort of how that's changed the calculus for her group and how it's changed the dynamic between that clinic and these protesters.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Trudy Perez-Poveda's group is Family for Life. Uh, they've been active in Jacksonville for, for many years. And before they were able to get this lease agreement, um, they could only protest on the public sidewalk. The public sidewalk is about a block away from the front door of this clinic in Jacksonville called a Woman's Choice. Um, But in November of 2020, um, Trudy was uh, able to look at public uh, records, property records online, and realized that there was an easement um, in this office park that allowed access for tenants on this road that's right in front of the clinic. Um, And then property became available uh, for lease right next door to the clinic. And the group pounced on uh, obtaining this lease agreement. And for $1,000 a month, um, they rent a room and a bathroom and it gives them complete access to this easement that's right in front of the clinic. Um, they can get within just a few inches of the clinic's property line. Um, and tensions have really been growing here. Um, there have been a number of police calls of the of Trudy's group calling the police on the clinic. Um, and we know that one patient from Georgia uh, who was being yelled at by Trudy and other protesters who were taking photos of cars outside of the clinic, the young woman was arrested after after she pushed Trudy mm. um, and she's now facing a felony battery charge
0: here's a message we got from Lisa in
2: Florida. I have attended protests for abortion rights, and I definitely want them to stay peaceful. I think that Peaceful protest is the most successful way to make voices heard. I feel like the instant that we become unpeaceful is the instant we undermine any kind of message and complicate the situation.
0: Laura Morell, the the clinic at the center of your piece is a women's choice of Jacksonville. We talked about it a few moments ago. Kelly Flynn runs that, and it's a place that's had a number of these protests um, in in recent years. one A producer Arfi Getty caught up with Flynn and asked her about how the clinic is preparing for an increase in protests. And here's what she told us.
3: You know, a lot of the patients are confused because they they don't understand. So we try to prep them over the phone and just say, listen, there, there may be people out there. Just drive through. If we have escorts, then the escorts will... Protect them with their umbrella and 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 escort them inside. But patients are typically just like, why why are they out here? This is not their business. If the other groups want to want to protest and picket, they have that's their constitutional right to do so. Just as it's our right for for patients to have access to abortion care. What I would like to see is people not dismissing the harassment and having more support. From our local police department, having higher levels of security, it would be great if some laws could be put in place to help protect us, such as buffer zones. So, I mean, you don't go into any other practice and wonder if you're going to have to walk through a gauntlet of people and get screamed at and harassed at. So that's what I would would like to see, because if Roe is overturned, I know we're going to see more violent activity. And harassment, it would behoove everybody to say, okay, well, if this is what's going to happen, then we need to protect any kind of violence before it happens by, you know, putting some additional safety regulations in place to protect clinics like ours.
0: I'll turn to our law professor, Mary Ziegler, to ask about sort of laws that are on the books to restrict this from happening or prevent this from happening. I know that the main one is the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, the FACE Act. That's from back in 1994, really one of the only protections that clinics have against harassment. Um, Mary, what is it and and how does it apply here in Florida? How has it been used in recent years?
4: So the the FACE Act was signed uh, by Bill Clinton in 1994. Um, It prohibits force or the threat of force um, or physical obstruction uh, to um, abortion clinics and other clinics that provide reproductive health services. Um, And so there there are kind of two ways that the, the FACE Act can be effective or ineffective. One thing, of course, Laura mentioned that there'd been an escalation since 2016. I think that that's not only because people were emboldened by the changing composition of the Supreme Court, it was also because, of course, for a large portion of that time, uh, President Donald Trump was in, then President Donald Trump was in office and the Department of Justice, which is charged with enforcing the Freedom um, of Access to Clinic Entrances Act was not particularly prioritizing that, so to speak. So the the statute was kind of um, not quite a dead letter, but certainly not being vigorously enforced either. And I think the other potential issue and why you you saw um, people in Florida calling for more is that there's lots of conduct that may not cross the line drawn by the FACE Act that patients would still find concerning or intimidating. Um, And a lot of that has to do with with patient privacy. There may be other potential remedies through tort law um, in in the state, uh, depending on how that information is subsequently used But even then, those acts, those um, lawsuits, those kinds of privacy lawsuits may not work. And it it may not even matter because if patients believe that their privacy is compromised, that may be all the harm you need. It may not ultimately matter if the information is later used against them in some kind of consequential way.
0: Laura Morrell, this is the the other sort of investigative keystone to to the piece that you reported sort of centering on Face Act cases and, and you and your colleagues at Reveal obtained a, a list of every face case that's been filed by the Justice Department since back in, in nineteen ninety four when this was when this was signed into law. You you got that through a FOIA request, I, I gather. What did you learn from from those data? Sort of how does that back up what we heard there from from Mary about how this has been used over the last two decades, three decades?
1: Yeah, so we obtained a list of case numbers, and um, we looked through all of the case filings and newspaper clips, and we were able to to determine that only 101 cases, an average of about four a year, have been filed under face in the last 28 years. Um, And one thing that you notice when you're looking at the data in these different cases is that The FACE Act was really successful in cracking down on clinic invasions and blockades that were happening in the 80s and 90s when activists were chaining themselves to clinic entrances or parking cars with flat tires at front doors of clinics. But now the tactics have evolved. They've changed. You know, the things that we're seeing now are protesters taking photos of patients or what Trudy Perez-Proveta's group did in Jacksonville in leasing space right next door to the clinic. So it doesn't rise to the level of FACE, but it's still an act of intimidation. It's still an act of obstruction. It's just not physical obstruction, which is what, what's required uh, in order to file a case under the FACE Act.
0: Barry Ziegler, beyond that decision that's going to be handed down presumably in June on First Street in, in Washington from, from the Supreme Court, What should we be watching for? What are you going to be watching for when it comes to this issue of abortion access and abortion rights in this country? Are there states in particular or issues in particular that you're going to be paying particularly close attention to?
4: Yeah, I think they fall into a few categories. So in red states, I'm watching to see how the kind of internal debate within the GOP and the anti-abortion movement unfolds. So we don't know how broadly those states are going to want to define abortion, for example. Do they want to sweep in, you know, IUDs or... Emergency contraception, that was a question the governor of Mississippi was asked recently on CNN and wasn't sure how to answer. Are they going to want to punish people for self-managed abortions? Or are they going to stick to the position taken by groups like the Susan B. Anthony list that that's wrong? Um, so that, that's one level um, of the conflict. I'll be watching what happens in battleground states, which include not only places like Florida that you may suspect, but places like Pennsylvania with large blue cities like Philadelphia to see if those states move in the direction of criminalizing abortion or not. Um, there are already battles ongoing in Michigan about whether that state's pre-row ban will spring back into effect or not because of state constitutional litigation and a measure that voters will have to confront on the ballot. And then finally, I'm looking to see how these state conflicts, interstate conflicts unfold. To what extent do red states try to regulate what's happening in blue states and to what extent do blue states actually try to take concrete steps to make themselves sanctuaries or havens for people mm-hmm. seeking abortion? I think all of those things are worth watching um, in the days and weeks ahead.
0: A lot to watch. Mary Ziegler, thank you very much for your time. She's a professor at the UC Davis School of Law. Her new book is Dollars for Life, the Anti-Abortion Movement and the Fall of the Republican Establishment. It's coming out next month. Thanks also to Laura Morell. She's a reporter at Reveal. Again, her latest piece is "Abortion's Last Stand in the South: A Post Roe Future Is Already Happening in Florida." Laura, thank you very much for the reporting and for joining us. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder that you can join future conversations: download our One A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Think about the last time you saw an ad on Facebook for sneakers after walking past a shoe store in a mall, or you got an email coupon for cough medicine after searching cold symptoms on Google. Tech companies are constantly tracking and selling your data to third parties, often without your explicit consent. That's raised alarm bells for privacy advocates, and now it's a key focus of the abortion rights movement. Roe v. Wade is poised to be overturned by the Supreme Court next month. It's likely that would lead to new state-level laws banning abortion. Some are now wondering how personal data could be tracked and used by law enforcement and anti-abortion activists. That's part of our series, Extremely Online, where we explore the ways the internet intersects with our daily lives. We're discussing abortion and digital privacy. And we're joined today by Alejandra Carballo. She's a clinical instructor in Cyber Law Clinic at Harvard Law School. Alejandra, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. And Joanna Buya is with us as well, senior tech reporter at The Guardian US. Thanks so much for being here as well. Thanks for having me. Alondra, let me start with you. You've you've written a piece for Wired called Tech Companies Are Not Ready for a Post-Roe Era. Um, and I wonder if you could start just by describing sort of the, the position that they're in right now, they the companies, and we as users of their technologies as we look at what could be this seismic shift in just a few weeks' time.
2: So basically, most of these tech companies have... The entire digital revolution has, has come of age in a time where Roe was uh, um, in effect, where... Abortion was legal um, and uh, protected constitutional right. And so they haven't really had to think through how their services and how they collect data uh, could be used to criminalize abortion, um, particularly in very restrictive states um, in a post-Roe world. Um, And so they're going to find themselves in a maelstrom of political policy and technological challenges um, in a post-Roe world where they have to navigate issues where prosecutors may be seeking data on people who travel out of state for abortion care. Um, They may be seeking uh, payment data from payment apps, such as Venmo and PayPal of who's donating to abortion funds. Um, Additionally, there's going to be the implications on tech companies of um, their own employees who want to leave the state either to be relocated or to seek abortion care in another state where abortion Mm -hmm. is legal. And so These are are significant hurdles and challenges that these companies are going to have to face.
0: Jordan, let me ask you a little bit more about that. And so when we talk about the the kind of data that abortion rights advocates are worried about, go a little deeper here. Tell me a bit bit more of of what they're worried about in specific.
5: Sure, I mean, you know right now, almost every app and service that we use collects some level of personal user data. And even before the conversation of Roe v. Wade, um, companies like Google, the major tech companies as well as smaller companies have increasingly become the target of law enforcement requests because they store these mass databases of data often for ever. You know, there's not federal regulation that limits the amount of time that they can store that data. So, um, law enforcement agencies and government agencies have um, sought everything from, um, you know, just subscription or subscriber user data, which means you know how long you've held an account, um, how often you're using it, to things that are a lot more granular, like your location data. There is a current warrant um, that law enforcement are increasingly using right now called a geofence warrant, which is very very broad. All it is is that they're saying, um, you know, often to Google because they have. They, they have their own phones. Um, we suspect a crime occurred in this particular place at this particular time. Can you give me all of the devices um, and the, the information for all of the devices that were in that area at that time? Um, you know, we don't ha- really have uh, proof that that's already been used in the abortion context, but you can imagine, and it's not far from reality, um, that a law enforcement could soon use that in a post-war world to find out who was in, you know, the vicinity of an abortion clinic. Mm. And already we've seen geofence warrants have um, put, uh, put people who did not commit a crime and, and put them sort of at the target of, of an investigation.
0: I want to bring in Senator Ron Wyden into the conversation, the senior senator from Oregon, the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. And uh, after yesterday's vote in the Senate on the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, vote that failed 49 to 51, he delivered a speech on the, the Senate floor saying women's personal data is going to be weaponized against them uh, by bounty hunters and the government. Uh, Senator Wyndon, thank you very much for being here. And I'd I'd love just to get your reaction to what you've heard here about the concerns uh, that many abortion rights advocates have expressed here. How much does it concern you and and what position is the Senate in to do anything about it?
6: I think it's an enormous concern. I was listening to the previous speaker who really laid out our our concerns with respect to this whole question of invasion of uh, privacy. I mean, she was really spelling out the horrendous, concept of what would amount to uterus surveillance. And I have been sounding the alarm for years that location data leached from phone apps, for example, is ripe for abuse. And in a world where these uh, extremists make abortion illegal, that goes from a problem to a five alarm uh, crisis. And there is much that The Congress should do Uh, what's essential is to pass a consumer privacy law to restrict how Americans' private data is collected, used, and shared. And by the way, when you reduce the amount of sensitive data that companies hold, and the number of companies that have the data, you'd also make it hard for far-right extreme prosecutors to sift Mm. through private records to control women's uh, private decisions. I also have a bipartisan bill called the Fourth Amendment is Not for Sale Act. It says the government can't buy information from data brokers to avoid getting a warrant. Passing our bill would make it harder for uh, far-right states to buy up big databases of information without warrants and then hunt down anybody seeking an abortion. Third, and I'm the author of this, the Congress needs to protect Section 230, which preempts state laws when it comes to online speech. Without 230, it is very likely that websites and social media companies would be deluged with lawsuits, again, from far-right states and would be forced to take down information about how to obtain an abortion, even in states where it's legal. Senator, I'd love to get your assessment
0: of the power that the tech industry has on Capitol Hill, uh, the degree to which you see that lobbying might day to day, and how big a role that's played in forestalling the kinds of proposals that you're making?
6: My my view is that the companies now are really going to have to make a decision. Are they going to support these efforts that are clearly going to help the consumer, or are they just going to continue in many instances, just business as usual, for a short-term buck? I hope that we are starting to see, particularly as we look to regulate data brokers. I mean, these data brokers have been in a kind of universe where there is essentially no accountability, mm-hmm. no rules, and if somebody shows up with a credit card, you know, they basically give out give out your data. So the companies really have some choices to make now. I think their uh, customers are going to insist on some of the core consumer protections, you know, we're talking about, and if not. They're going to take their business to the people who are going to step up and meet the challenge of the time
0: senator wine before i let you go let me ask you one question about that vote uh, yesterday uh, women's health protection act 49 to 51 it didn't pass uh, senator joe manchin your colleague from west virginia did not vote in favor of it i wonder if you've had a chance to speak with him about his objections to the legislation uh, as written i know that your leader uh, chuck schumer the senate majority leader was adamant that the vote take place because it showed americans where everyone stands what have you said to Senator Manchin? What would you like to hear from Senator Manchin about a path forward here? I think a lot of Americans are sort of wondering about the position of of the Congress overall uh, as uh, the focus shifts to what's happening just a few blocks away in the Supreme Court in the coming weeks.
6: Yeah, I, I think what we've got to do here, and of course, this is not the end of this discussion. This is basically the beginning. We've got to draft the uh, position from the court. We'll see what the final details are. We've had the vote. I'm going to come out of the gate and say, let's start with the proposition that the greatest nation on earth is poised to be one of only a handful of countries in the world moving backwards on women's rights. Mm. I think that is really what this is all about. Are we going to turn back the clock on privacy? Are we going to turn back the clock on women's ability to make these inherently private and personal decisions and let all these people who normally are decrying big government say, oh, it's just fine now. Let's turn it over to big government and take away your privacy and your option to make this decision yourself.
0: Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, thank you very much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Let's
6: do it again. Thanks.
0: Thanks so much. Alejandro, I want to ask you about search histories. I know that they've been been used by law enforcement in the past. I think there's a Kind of marquee example that took place in, in Mississippi. Maybe you could tell us a bit about that and, and sort of the the role that they're playing increasingly in criminal investigations.
2: Yes. Uh, so this particular case uh, that you were referencing um, was of Latisse Fisher, uh, who's a black woman who lived in, in Mississippi. Um, and she was charged with uh, homicide because uh, she had a stillborn uh, fetus. Um, and they looked particularly at her search history, which looked um, at trying to find mifepristone, which is the uh, medication that induces abortion um, and is often prescribed as part of an abortion. And so they assumed that that was particularly the the cause of it. And so they used that as evidence uh, to uh, prosecute her. Um, and so th- this isn't an, an isolated event where... You know, search history is used to, uh, to prosecute people. Um, oftentimes, it can be uh, just basically anything that's uh, digital evidence, geolocation data, where you've been, um, text messages, all of these things. Um, I think people don't don't fundamentally realize how, just how much data they create in any given day, um, and all of that can be turned. Even innocuous things can can be turned against you. Um, there's one particular case where where someone's uh, flashlight app data was used in, in uh, as evidence um, in a murder uh, case. Um, and so all this is just an incredible amount of surveillance. Um, and one of the things I, I just want to add is that, you know, so much of this prosecution has already been occurring. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's already been cases of women being charged with um, homicide for self-inducing abortion or allegedly self-inducing abortions. Um, We had the case just a a few weeks ago of Lizelle Herrera in Texas. Um, The charges were dropped due to to public pressure. Um, But, you know, this will be increasingly common. This is while Roe is still in effect. um, In a post-Roe world, these kinds of of prosecutions could become almost a daily occurrence.
0: John, on the issue of, of telemedicine abortion, Um, I'd love to ask you a question about abortion pills and uh, my colleague Chris Remington, a producer on the show, spoke with uh, Elisa Wells, co-director of the nonprofit Plan C. They provide research and resources for those seeking medical abortions. Uh, They talked about the surge in demand. Let's hear what she had to say.
2: Well, our biggest concern is for the person who is, is managing the abortion that they not be criminalized. When you talk about these trigger laws and things, most of the laws in the
6: United States pertain to the provider of the service.
2: So, what does that mean when it's the person themselves that's <laughs> providing the service? It, and it's unclear. Um, there are very few states that actually that currently regulate self-managed abortion.
0: So, Johanna, how does how does this part uh, of, of what we're talking about stand to change? Uh, the sort of, as I said, telemedicine abortion stand to change uh, if if Rose, in fact, overturned in, in a couple of weeks.
5: Yeah, I mean, like like um, Alejandro was saying, I mean it. it The internet has made it very easy to access um, self-managed abortions and uh, the abortion pill, which is um, uh, primarily prescribed in these situations. But it also leaves a very, very clear digital footprint. So it'd be very easy to track through um, individualized subpoenas, um, seeking search data. Um, or what's called keyword search warrants, um, which is also, it's sort of a broad warrant similar to geofence warrants um, that seeks all of the devices that search for particular terms. So again, we don't have proof that this has happened yet, um, but in a post-Roe world, you can imagine um, law enforcement agencies in states where there are trigger laws uh, seeking the information of all devices that search for this particular pill. Um, And so, you know, for... Yeah, I mean, the, the main thing that experts had said to me in my reporting and, 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 and how users and, and people, individuals, could protect themselves is to, um, when they're searching for these these uh, self-managed uh, options, to use browsers that don't capture any of their search history, um, you know, Tor browsers, for instance.
0: Alejandra, I get back to the piece that you wrote for Wired and sort of tech companies' capacity to do this or their ability to do this, to think beyond the products themselves about the moral implications of what they're doing and the broader issues at play here. And um, I just wonder sort of what your thinking is on that at this point. It means I mean, it seems like there have been countless tests on, on other issues that these companies have faced. Does any of that engender any optimism on your part that they are uh, up for this, or they're reckoning with it seriously, or, or they're going to devote the time and energy necessary to, um, to really think this out?
2: Uh, I think I'm I'm fairly pessimistic on this. Um, looking at tech companies, thinking that they're actually going to take a more affirmative approach on this, I think particularly when you look to an analogous situation with um, either hate speech and content moderation on Facebook, on Twitter, and all of these other social media companies, you know they've been very very slow or hesitant uh, to enact any kind of meaningful. Uh, controls on their algorithms that that uh, result in algorithmic amplification of hate speech and very um, negative content like misinformation, Mm -hmm. and because it's a direct threat to their profitability. And it's this, it's this is even more direct than their algorithms and engagement. This is specifically dealing with the data that can be used for targeted advertising. And so when, when something is that directly tied to their profitability, they only have one duty as a publicly traded corporation, which mm-hmm. is to increase shareholder value. Gosh. And when that conflicts with um, any other uh, concerns, especially around privacy, the, the increasing profitability is gonna be the sole factor. And I just wanted to add uh, to respond to, to one of the prior questions about the the apps. I wanted to, to specifically mention um, there are apps that are built from the ground up that <laughs> are built with privacy in mind by nonprofits, such as Yuki, E-U-K-I. It's a sexual health app um, that is that encrypts the data and does not store it in the cloud. Um, and so it, it, apps other, like other that op- are Other options problem. are
0: available out there, yeah. That's Alejandra Carballo. She's a clinical instructor at Cyberlaw Clinic at Harvard Law School. And the piece that I flagged earlier is tech companies are not ready for a post row era. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Johanna Bouya as well, senior technology reporter with The Guardian. Today's producer was Chris Remington. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.